We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. Welcome, everybody, to another live Peter Schiff Show podcast on YouTube. By the way, if you're not watching these podcasts live because you don't know that they're coming, you got to subscribe to this YouTube channel. You get an automatic notification when we're going live. By the way, don't just subscribe, comment, and make sure to like this video. You guys are doing a pretty good job of liking the videos. Ever since I started asking, I've gotten at least 11,000 likes per uh, video. And you know, prior to my asking for the likes, I was only getting two to 3,000. So we've more than tripled uh, the number of likes. The high water mark is 20,000. That was from one of the uh, podcasts last week. So let's see if we can break that record. That's the record so far. Records are made to be broken. So I'm counting on you guys to to do it now speaking about likes everybody seemed to like the retail sales numbers that came out today although the bond traders didn't like it at all i'll get to that later but the media was certainly hyping up uh the number that came out today it was much stronger than expected but this is not actually good news this is all sales, number one, are not adjusted for inflation. Now, we all know that prices are going up. And so if you don't adjust retail sales for inflation, what, you know, prices, retail sales are going to go up. Everything costs more. Everything you buy 
is a lot more expensive. And so assuming that you don't buy less, and of course some people are buying less, but if you just buy the same stuff and everything costs a lot more, well, of course, retail sales are going to go up. But it doesn't indicate that the economy is thriving, that Americans just have a lot more money and so they're buying a lot more stuff. In many cases, they're buying a lot less. They're just paying more, but buying less. And they're buying fewer of the things that they want because they're paying more to buy the things that they need. Because the retail sales doesn't differentiate between your needs uh, and, and your wants. It's just everything that you spent money on. So if you end up spending more on food or energy, uh, uh, then that counts as an increase in retail sales. Now, Americans aren't happy that their grocery bill went up, and they're probably not eating more or eating better. In fact, they're probably uh, uh, trading down into lower quality stuff. Uh, they're just paying more. You know, restaurant sales were one of the components that was up a lot. But if you've been to a restaurant recently, especially a restaurant that you go to often, and you look at the menu, I mean, you're shocked at the prices. The prices have gone up dramatically. So there's no way to eat out without spending a lot more than you spent if you ate the same restaurant a year ago. That is not a sign of a strong economy. It is a sign of inflation. And that's all this retail sales number is reflecting is inflation. It's not about a strong economy, but about rising inflation. And we all know that actual prices are rising much faster than the official measures. I mean, we know that there's a lot of videos. I've seen a few of these on the Internet where people are you know, shopping in, uh, in grocery stores and they're showing what the items cost. And then they have the receipts from a year ago. And they're just comparing what they're paying now to what they were paying a year ago. And the year-over-year -year increase is much more. Remember, the government is only claiming, I think, 3.7% now, year-over-year. -year. Now, of course, remember, that's 3.7% on top of the 9% from you know, the year before that. Now, all this talk about inflation coming down, they forget that it's all cumulative. I mean, even if we went down to 2%, that's still 2% more than all the previous increases combined. Nobody is talking about prices coming down so that we can actually reverse some of the increases. All they're talking about is slowing down the rate of increase. But prices will keep increasing from levels that are already substantially higher than they were a few years ago. But even the year-over-year -year increases that I'm seeing online now are 10% or 15% on top of everything else. So this is all a lie. In fact, I did this video. I've talked about it. You can still see this video on YouTube. And I did it in 2013. That's how long the government has been pulling off this con, trying to tell people that you know inflation is lower than it really is. And I'm going to mention it again because it's a good YouTube video. Just find it uh, on, my, on my YouTube channel. Um, I, I've got all these little pictures around it of, uh, you know, the, the, the items. But what I did is I, I, I really dissected the CPI in that video. And, and, and I created a basket of actual goods and compared my basket 
to the real the, the government number and prices rose I forget to double triple uh, what the government claimed now my basket was consistent I just grabbed 20 items and and, and compared the prices uh, over this you know 10 year period compared to the CPI but one thing in particular that I remember exactly I don't remember what the real numbers were uh, uh, on that comparison but I did one particular category exactly, and that was newspapers and magazines. And the reason that I, I chose this one was because it was very easy for me to verify what newspapers and magazines cost in 2003, because I know I did it in 2013. And it was very easy because I just had to go online and find images of the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, uh, Business Week, People Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, you know, whatever. I, I picked like 20 magazines or whatever that were high, highly circulated magazines. And I just went back on the Internet and I looked at the covers and I just saw the prices, right? They're, they're written right there, right? And so then I compared the prices that were on the covers of those magazines in 2003 to the prices that were on the covers of the same newspapers and magazines in 2013, right? That, that's an honest way of doing it. I don't need any government uh, formula. It's just look at the price. What was it 10 years ago? What is it now? How much did it go up? And when I did that, I saw a 130% increase in the price of those magazines and newspapers. But according to the official CPI, the total increase in newspaper magazine prices over the 10-year period was just 30%, 30%. But the actual increase, as confirmed by the magazines themselves, was 130%. So 100% was missing, right? It went into the CPI, but it never came out, thanks to the magic of the CPI. So obviously, if the government is underreporting how much prices are going up, then the retail sales are actually capturing the real increase in prices because it's what the consumers are actually paying. It's not what the government is pretending they're actually paying, but what they are in fact paying. And so these retail sales numbers are probably a better reflection of inflation than the CPI. And that's why the number is going up. It's going up because of inflation. So we're not going to celebrate this this is bad news. Now, let me actually look at the numbers. So the consensus was for a 0.3% increase in retail sales. Instead, we rose by 0.7, well above the high end of the, 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 the forecast range, which went from a decline of 0.1 to an increase of 0.5. And they took the prior months up 0.6, and they raised that to up 0.8, so a double uh, beat. And if you take out vehicles, they were looking for 0.2. The increase was up 0.6, triple estimates. And they took the prior month, which was originally reported at up 0.6, and they made that up 0.9. And if you take out food, vehicles, and gas, same story, they were looking for an increase of 0.1. Instead, the increase was 0.6, six times as big. In fact, double 
the higher end of the range. They were looking for anywhere from minus 0.5 to up 0.3, and we got up 0.6. And again, the prior month was also revised up from 0.2 to 0.3. So I'm hearing all the reports about this strong uh, consumer, you know, the unsinkable American consumer. He's not unsinkable. He's drowning in debt. And the only reason he's still floating is because he's got two or three jobs. I mean, that's the only reason they're able to keep spending all this money. And again, this is not a report card on the success of the American economy, but on the failure. Because what it's really measuring is the cost of living. People have to spend a lot more money to buy the same amount of stuff that they bought in the past. In fact, they're buying less stuff. Uh, Consumer electronics... Uh, went down, right? If you look at the the components of the retail sales, consumers spent less money on electronics. Even though there's new iPhone 15s out there, right? People are spending less on electronics. Now, those prices went up too, but they obviously have to cut back on that. Uh, Clothing actually went down as well. Now, we know clothing prices probably went up, but people are spending less on clothing because they're spending more on shelter. They're spending more on energy. They're spending more on food, they're spending more on insurance, they're spending more on health care. They gotta make these expenditures, they have no choice, right? And the problem is when they finish buying all the things they need, they don't have much left over for the things that they want, and so that's why uh, spending there is going down. In fact, after the bell today, we got news from uh, United Airlines, Uh, their stock was selling off in after hours because they missed, obviously, People are flying less. They don't have the money, and ticket prices are sky high. Anyway, uh, we got a quick commercial break. Stick around. We will be right back. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. I'm talking about the retail sales numbers that came out hotter than expected and universally praised uh, by the financial media uh, as showing a strong economy with a, a vibrant uh, consumer, you know, there's no underestimating. The consumer is strong. He's powerful. He's Hercules, right? There's no stopping him. Look at him spend, right? And apart from the fact that this is all BS because it's inflation that's driving this, I want to talk a little bit before I get to the market reaction, which is also important, but I want to talk a little bit about the concept that retail sales, which is basically 
you know, go to the store and buying, that somehow the act of doing that is some heroic act and that Americans, you know, should be applauded uh, because of their fortitude to shop. Like no matter what happens, like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to be resilient and we're going to go to the malls we're gonna, or we're going to get to Amazon and, you know, nothing's going to stop us, right? We, you know, we, we're, we're going to keep on spending and, and somehow this is the, the, the strength. In fact, I remember I, I read some article years and years ago about why Americans were, you know, uniquely qualified to shop. Like we were, we were better, uh, you know, positioned. You know, like that was our comparative advantage that we, we could shop. And, and one of the things they said was we have really big cars. We have a lot of SUVs, so we have a lot of room uh, to load up our, our vehicles with stuff that we buy, right? And, and so that, that was an advantage we have over people in other countries that didn't have enough room in their trucks uh, to put all this stuff. But I mean, I forget all the other nonsense that, that was in there about why we were such good shoppers. As if, you know, that is the key to economic growth. Shopping, buying, and, and, and that's all based on a lack of understanding of basic economics. Shopping is the caboose of the economic train. It is not the engine. Before you can shop, there must be something to buy. Where does that come from? It has to be produced. Before you can consume, you must produce. So the strength of an economy is a function of its productive capacity, how much it produces. Because everything that gets produced is going to get consumed, right? The shopping is the fun part, right? That's where you reap the rewards of all your hard work. The hard work is making the stuff in the first place that ends up on the shelves, right? Now, the, the problem with the U.S. economy and what they're not measuring in these retail sales is so much of the stuff that is being bought retail is imported. We didn't make the stuff. So retail sales in America Restrict the, reflect the strength of the Chinese economy or whatever economy is producing the stuff that we're buying. Because if the shelves were empty, could we shop? No, we can't. We could only shop because there's stuff to buy. And there's only stuff to buy because people in other countries made it. And they let us buy it on credit, which is the other uh, thing that they ignore. Where are the consumers getting the money to spend? They're getting it from debt. They're, they're maxing out their credit cards. They're depleting their savings. And that is what is powering their ability to go out there and buy stuff retail. So this is not good. This is not strength. Strength would be a, a big surge in production. We're making more stuff. We're building more factories that gives us the capability of, uh, of producing more stuff, but we're not getting uh, that information. I mean, we got some other economic data that came out uh, so far this week. Empire State Manufacturing Index, that was down. It was down 4.6 uh, for October. Um, and so it's a, a negative number, right? That, that would be indicative of strength if we were manufacturing more, but no, we're manufacturing less. When we got the industrial production numbers today and they, they were up, uh, but just slightly, up 0.3, um, and that was better than the estimate. And uh, manufacturing output was up 0.4. It was supposed to drop by 0.1, but these numbers are routinely 
very low, right? So we're not really uh, increasing our uh, productive capacity. We're just shopping. But again, we're not even really shopping more because we're too broke to do that. We're just paying more. But we keep on shopping. And the reason we're doing that is, again, multiple jobs and debt, credit card debt uh, and other debt. And again, I think that a lot of people who have credit card debt, one of the reasons they're, they're running it up is because they have no intention of paying it off. You know, I hear a lot of people trying to claim that we don't have to worry about the credit card debt because there's not a lot of delinquencies yet. Well, I think that's just a matter of time. I think that a lot of uh, people who have credit cards are just making their minimum monthly payment. And if you ever look at your credit card bill, now I pay my credit card bill off in full every month. But when I get the bill, it tells me like, you know, how much I can pay. And the minimum payment is tiny compared to the, compared to the bill. You know, I laugh when I see what the minimum is. But if you pay the minimum, then you're paying the maximum amount of interest uh, on your balance. But what I think a lot of people are doing is they're just paying the minimum so they can keep on charging more. I mean, let's say your minimum payment on your, your, your credit card, let's say you owe 50 grand, whatever, on your card, and your minimum payment is $1,000, but you're charging $5,000 a month on that card. Well, sure, you'll pay 1000 because it's cheaper than paying five for the stuff you're buying, right? So you'll, you'll make the minimum payment so you can keep on charging stuff because you don't want your charging privileges taken away. So yes, you make the minimum payment, but once you make the, you know, the, uh, the conclusion or your decision that, hey, I'm not gonna pay this money back. There's just no way I'm, I, I'm gonna pay the 50 grand. I, I don't have it. The minute mentally you, 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 you come to that conclusion, now all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what you, what you buy, how much the bill is. Everything is free at that point. Once you've decided that you're gonna default on your credit card debt, whatever you buy is free. All you have to do is keep paying the minimum payment until your bank cuts you off, right? And then you'll default. And, and so that's the moral hazard because once you know you're gonna default, see the bank doesn't know what your intention is, right? They're dumb enough to think that you're gonna pay. But once you realize you're not going to pay, well, then who cares, right? When you're still planning on paying your credit card debt, there may be some resistance, right, or, you know, uh, to spending more. Because it's like, well, if I buy this, you know, I, I got I to pay for it, right? So if I buy something for $1,000, I got to pay the $1,000 with interest. But if you know right off the bat, when you buy that $1,000 item, that you're never going to pay that $1,000, that maybe you'll pay one or 200 of interest, before the bank finally shuts you down. Well, it's like 80% off. Why not buy it, right? People want to go out with a bang, right? Why go bankrupt owing $50,000 on your credit card when you can go bankrupt owning 100, owing 100,000 or 150,000, right? The more, the better, because you get to keep all that stuff. When you declare bankruptcy, the credit card company doesn't repossess all the stuff that you bought. No, you get to keep it. it it's an unsecured loan. It's not like, you know, if you default on your mortgage, you don't get to keep the house, right? The bank can take the house. That's, that's the collateral. Same thing on your car loan. You don't make your car payments. The, you know, the repo man can take your car. Nobody is going to come to your house and take your stuff, right? If you bought a car on your credit card, they can't take your car. Your credit card debt is 100% unsecured.
And, and, and so there's a huge risk there. So people are underestimating the problem because they're just looking at the current default rate. And they have no idea how those default rates are going to unexpectedly surge in, in, in the future. But anyway, so my point that I was trying to make before I kind of like went on all these various tangents was that debt is driving a lot of these retail sales. And, and so again, it's not a measure of, of, of economic strength, it's economic profligacy. And the fact that Americans are spending is not something that you know, we should applaud. It's an embarrassment. We're, you know, we're a bunch of you know, kids, like profligate spenders, that are just out there going on a shopping spree, right? There, there is no comparative advantage in reckless, irresponsible behavior. That's, that's what we're doing. And, and all of this has been fed uh, by our economic policy, our monetary and fiscal policy, because once upon a time, we were a nation of frugal savers. We had a high savings rate, right? Uh, we were responsible. Are we supposedly uh, a better nation now that we're reckless and irresponsible? The fact that we don't save and the fact that we buy stuff that we can't afford, right? No, we, we, were, we were a much better nation in the past when we acted fiscally responsibly and when we you know, had the, the discipline to delay gratification. It wasn't all about now, I have to indulge every desire I have right now. We were able to hold off. We were able to refrain from spending and delay that gratification to a later day. That, that's how adults behave. And now we're a bunch of reckless kids, which again is like you know when you're talking about spending, uh, and saying, hey, that's, that's the key to economic success. It's like saying that the reason a family is, is successful is because the kids spend money. No, it's because the parents earn the money. That's what's driving uh, the household. Take the parents out of the equation and the kids are going to starve or they're not going to be able to buy anything. The only reason they can buy is because their parents are out there working, three, four, five jobs, right? So it's the work that's important. That, that, that's the... That, 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 that's the, um, the locomotive, right? That's what drives the economic train. Everything else follows through. Uh, the spending is the reward, right? It's, it's what you get a, 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 as a consequence, as a result of your production. You know, but we, we, we put the, the, the cart before the horse. We've got it backwards, and we're going to, we're going to end up suffering the consequences uh, very soon uh, for that profligacy. Anyway, we've got one more commercial and we will be right back. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We are back. You know, I was looking in the comments and I noticed people were asking me, what's that thing in Peter's ear? And this is my Raycon earbud. 
I've been wearing these recently because the, the normal uh, earpiece that is part of my studio setup is malfunctioning. We haven't been able to fix it, so luckily I have this Raycon uh, to substitute. So I keep it in there so I can hear the commercials and I know when, uh, when to come back. But now that the commercials are over, I don't need it anymore, and so I can take it out of my ear. But you see, that proves I read your comments. That's how I knew that people were curious about what was in uh, my ear. And again, don't forget, comment on this video, like this video, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Anyway, I want to now focus my attention on the market's reaction to the hotter than expected retail sale number. The market that did the right thing was the bond market, which got clobbered. Another huge down day in treasury bonds. In fact, the yield on the five-year treasury hit a new high for this cycle. We almost got to 4.9. The high water mark intraday was 4.894, and we closed not too far below that. This is a new high for a five-year maturity. In fact, you have to go back to 2007 to find a yield higher than this. And in fact, if we get up to 5.27, which is not that far away, I think we'll be there by the end of the year. Uh, but when we get to that level, it'll be the highest yield on a five-year treasury since the year 2000. Now, in the year 2000, the national debt was only about $5.6 trillion. Now, I say only. That was still a big number. <laughs> but $5.6 trillion, uh, now it's $33.5 trillion, uh, you know, headed much higher. Now, if we actually had to pay, you know, 4.96 uh, trillion, 4.96% uh, rather, interest on the current national debt, you know, we'd be at over $1.5 trillion in interest payments right now annually, which is an enormous amount of money. But what's more important is think about interest rates moving even higher than that, because once we take out that 5.3% yield on a five-year. There's no resistance, really, from, from there. I mean, it, we've totally broken the bull market in bonds. I mean, it's a huge bear market. The high yield for a five-year U.S. Treasury was 16.1% in 1981. Now, again, if yields could get to 16.1% in 1981, they could do it again. It's not impossible. You know, Murphy has a law. It says that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Well, what can go wrong when you have a lot of debt? Interest rates go up. That's what goes wrong. All these politicians forgot about Murphy's Law, but it's there. And, you know, if interest rates could go to 16% in 1981, they sure as hell can go there now because we are a much worse credit risk today than we were in 1981. 1981, we were still a creditor nation. In fact, we were the world's biggest creditor nation. Now we're the world's biggest debtor. 1981, we still ran trade surpluses. Now we have record trade deficits. Uh, 1981, I think debt to GDP was closer to 30%. Now it's over 120% and rising. 
So fiscally, we were in much better shape, plus the average maturity on the debt. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was far longer then than it is now. Uh, so we are far more vulnerable today than we were in 1981. And yields are more likely to go to 16% now than they were then. I mean, if the Fed is honest, which is the big if, right? Because back in 1981, Paul Volcker was committed to fighting inflation. And in order to win that fight, rates went to 16%. Now, will uh, our current Fed chairman, will Powell or maybe Powell's successor be willing to win the inflation fight? and allow interest rates to go to 16% or 20% or 25% wherever they have to go, uh, given all the debt that we have, <laughs> not on your life. Because here is the reason. If we had to pay 16% interest on the current national debt, forget about what it's going to be in the future when rates might actually hit 16%. But on the um, uh, $33.5 trillion debt we got right now, 16% of that is like $5.4 trillion a year. That's 25% more than the government collects in taxes. Now, people are going to say, oh, Peter, don't be ridiculous. I mean, why should we even have to consider that possibility? Well, it happened before, so it's not outside the realm of possibility. You know, if interest rates have been at 16% in the past, they could certainly go there in the future. It's not zero chance. But the thing is, the country can't survive it. I mean, we should be strong enough to withstand any possible outcome. Everybody would admit, yes, if interest rates went that high, I mean, we're screwed. We're done for. I mean, it's a complete disaster. Well, okay, well, what if it happens? Because it's a possibility. Nobody can say it's impossible. But an economy should be able to withstand all possible outcomes, including, you know, tail, you know unlikely uh, scenarios, worst-case scenarios. I mean, maybe there's only a 5 or 10% chance, but there's a 5 or 10% chance of complete economic Armageddon. I mean, now, I think the chances are actually higher than that. The only reason they're not is because we'll have inflation instead. But the amount of inflation that the Fed would have to create in order to preclude that outcome would, would be a disaster in and of itself, which I think would be even worse then having rates move up that high would be wiping out the dollar completely. But anyway, so the bond market got clobbered today as a result of, um, of that number. And that was a logical reaction to that number. And again, the media will talk about, oh, the bond market is reacting to the strong economy. It's not. It's reacting to inflation. Because what these retail sales numbers are showing is that inflation is getting worse. Consumers continue to spend and they continue to pay higher prices. They're not reacting to these higher prices by saving more and spending less. They're just paying more and they continue to spend and they take second and third jobs or they tap into their savings or borrow on their credit cards. So this shows the Fed is losing and so bonds are reacting to inflation. And they're also probably reacting to uh, increased uh, loss of confidence in the U.S. government's ability to honestly repay its debts uh, or of the Fed's ability to continue to keep up a losing inflation battle. Now, 
a lot of people look at bonds and say, oh, bonds are a safe haven. Not from inflation. Bonds are the biggest loser in inflation. If inflation is your risk, if inflation is what you're worried about, the last place you'd want to be is bonds. Bonds are even worse than cash. So in a new world where inflation is the risk, bonds are not the safe haven. They are the risk asset. They are the new risk asset, bonds. And so people are selling the risk asset. And what are they starting to buy? The safe haven asset. What's that? Gold. Because gold is a safe haven from inflation. Now, at one time, you know, bonds were a safe haven for political uncertainty, but so was gold, right? They, they were a safe haven from certain things, uh, but gold, in addition to being a safe haven from those things, is also a safe haven from inflation. And by the way, bonds are not even a safe haven now from uh, political turmoil uh, or uh, you know, problems in the world, because those problems, like what we're seeing in the Middle East or what we're seeing in the Ukraine or anywhere, all those problems are going to result in more inflation. Right? It's going to strain an already strained fiscal position of the U.S. government. And as a result, any problem in the world is going to manifest itself with even higher inflation in the United States, which further erodes the appeal of U.S. Treasury. So gold is a safe haven, and gold was up today. Finally, shrugging off the weakness in, in, in bonds. I mean, gold wasn't up a lot today. It was up like three bucks, and it was up maybe 10 bucks or so uh, before the retail sales numbers came out. But, you know, a few months ago, a retail sales number like that would have sent gold down 20 bucks, 30 bucks. So the fact that gold rose at all in the face of that number and in the face of soaring bond yields shows that investors are now trying or figuring this out, that rising bond yields are not bad for gold. In fact, they're good for gold because they're rising because of inflation. And inflation is good for gold. And in fact, gold is up another three bucks or so uh, right now this evening as I'm recording uh, this podcast, gold's about $1,925 an ounce. And the gold chart looks fantastic. So does the yield on the bond chart, which is the inverse of the bond chart. The bond chart itself looks terrible because bond prices are falling. But if you flip that uh, graph upside down, that chart, and you look at the yields, the yields look like they're about to explode. That means a much bigger uh, increase in yields. That's what's coming. Uh, that's a negative. But gold is also poised for a big move up, as is oil. The oil chart also looks phenomenal. Oil was up, by the way, uh, about a buck seventy uh, a, a barrel. A lot of that happened late in the day. I'm looking at it now. We're at $87.15 uh, a barrel uh, in West Texas crude. But that chart looks phenomenal to me. I mean, I think we're on the verge of a big rise in the price of oil, in the price of gold, and in treasury yields. None of this is good news. This is all bad. This is the inflation trade. This is the 1970s when you see gold, oil, and interest rates all rising at the same time. It's inflation. It's a loss of confidence in the Fed. It's a loss of confidence in the fiscal sustainability 
of the U.S. government. Uh, and it's about time. I mean, I'm surprised uh, that we've been able to con so many people for as long as we have. But remember, it was, I think it was Abraham Lincoln. You, you, you can fool uh, some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't. You can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And that applies to the bond traders uh, and the gold traders. So they are figuring this out. Now, the next shoe to drop, I think, is going to be the dollar. The dollar index hasn't caved yet. It's still being supported by rising bond yield. But once we start to see uh, the dollar falling, which would be uh, the euro rising, uh, the pound rising, the yen rising, Aussie dollar, emerging market currencies, once we see all these foreign currencies rise, right, everything will be going up. Oil, gold, foreign currencies, and yields, bond yields. When all that's happening, well, then that's it. I mean, the party's over for the stock market. It's going to have to get hit uh, with that economic reality. You know, especially the banks. I want to talk about the earnings that came out today uh, for Bank of America because the media, once again, is missing the real story on the Bank of America earnings or really lack thereof because Bank of America didn't actually have earnings. They had huge losses despite the fact that they uh, reported their earnings. So the, the earnings that, that they reported um, for, this is the first half. The, the earnings came out for the quarter, but I kind of looked at the earnings for the first half of the year. Uh, but they reported a profit. Um, but what they, what they reported was a $48.1 billion in profits. For so for the first half of the year, right? We got the, the quarter's numbers, and so that brought uh, the six-month profits for 2023 to 48.1 billion. But in the most recent quarter, um, um, they lost an additional 95.9 billion on their so-called held-to-maturity securities. In other words treasuries and mortgages that are underwater. They lost an additional $95.9 billion on top of what they had already lost in, in, in previous to that. So the reality is, if you don't exclude these hold to maturity securities, if you actually mark them to market, how much did Bank of America earn? They earned nothing. They actually lost $47.8 billion dollars. Now, how could you claim to make 48 billion when you actually lost 47 billion? They actually lost an amount equal to what they claim they earned. Well, what they did is they ignored everything they lost on their mortgages, on their uh, treasury bonds. But how could you ignore that? That is the business of the bank. That's what the bank does. The bank uh, took the deposits and invested them in mortgages, and the mortgages that they bought have collapsed in value. How could you ignore that? How could that not be considered a loss when that's exactly what the bank did? That's like it's banking operations. Like, like what is a bank supposed to do? It's supposed to borrow money from uh, the, the customers and then turn around and lend it out to somebody else. And so what it's doing is the bank is ignoring all of the losses on its loans. These mortgages are loans. These banks make loans. They made loans to people to buy houses. 
They made loans to the government. The U.S. government borrowed from the banks. And now the banks have lost a ton of money on those loans, yet they're pretending those losses don't even exist, and they're reporting phony profits. Yet the media, Wall Street, lets them get away with it. Now, how does Bank of America get away with it? They say, well, we don't really count these losses because we're never going to sell these mark-to-market assets. We're going to hold them for 20 or 30 years, and then we're going to get our money back in 20 to 30 years. Well, what if they need their money back in two or three years? Then what? Well, we know what. That's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. That's what happened to Signature Bank. They, they intended to hold their mark-to-market securities to maturity, but the problem was those intentions went up in smoke when their customers wanted their money. So yeah, you can pretend that we're never gonna touch these assets, but what if you need the money? What if your customers, your bank customers, want their money back, either because they need it, because the economy's in recession and that they need to tap into their, you know, their savings, or because they want to earn 5 6 7% in a money market, and you can't pay them that, Bank of America, because you've got all the money locked up for 20 or 30 years at 1 2 3%, and you're, planning, you're claiming you didn't lose any money. This is a huge farce. Bank of America today is in worse financial shape than it was in 2008 when it got bailed out with all the other banks. That is the reality. And also, not only are they losing money on all these mortgages that are good, they're about to get hit with a bunch of bad loans because the real estate market has got to give. It's got to fall. I mean, we got these housing numbers that came out today. We got the... um, where is it? I have it up here. The housing market index for October sank to 40. It was at 45. The estimate was anywhere from 41 to 47, and it sank all the way down to 40. I read this article. I think it was a Goldman Sachs or something. This, this, this is the worst housing market since uh, 2009, right? right you know, it, immediately following the subprime collapse, right, when, when, when credit really froze up, right, because all the subprime borrowers were, were iced out of the market, nobody could get a loan, uh, and so, you know, even though home prices were down, uh, you know, people weren't buying because there was a credit crunch. Well, it's as bad as that right now, but the reason that people aren't buying is because they can't afford to buy the homes, because uh, affordability is at an all-time record low. I mean, the banks are willing to loan money as long as you're willing to pay 7.5% to borrow it. The problem is nobody can afford a mortgage at 7.5% at the current price. See, the only reason that the prices we have today were sustainable was because you could borrow money at 3%. And that, that enabled you to pay these high prices. But since money is now expensive, the house has to be cheap. That's the only thing that's going to give. I mean, unless the Fed is just going to cut rates and, and make an inflation problem worse and have and crash the dollar, which it might do. But unless the Fed is willing to surrender and give up the pretense of fighting inflation, the only thing that can give is the home price. And so that means home prices have to fall. And so what does that mean? That means that some people will default on their mortgages. Uh, And when they do, the bank is going to lose money on those defaults. Yes, they're going to be out of jail on the on the mortgage, 
but they're, gonna, they're not going to get their money back on the house because the house is going to crash. And so they're going to lose money on all the homes that default, and they're going to lose money on all the ones that don't. <laughs> and in fact, um, the ones that are more likely to go into default are people that don't have the, the 2 or 3% mortgages. Uh, maybe they weren't able to finance it quite that cheap, or maybe they had a shorter-term mortgage, maybe they had an arm. I mean, the higher your mortgage rate, the more likely you are to default. So it's, it's the homes that the bank would want you to stay in that are going to more likely default. The guys that got the super cheap rates, they probably won't default because, you know, worst case scenario, even if they can't afford to pay the mortgage, they can find a tenant. They can find a tenant who will rent out that house and they'll get positive cash flow. So the banks are stuck. They are just going to lose a fortune uh, on mortgages, but do both due to defaults and because some people don't default and they just and they're stuck with uh, these low coupon mortgages. But again, the commercial sector is a complete basket case. The banks are about to lose. Bank of America is going to lose even more money on on those mortgages because the or those loans rather because the collateral is already collapsed for those. It's just a question of. Uh, when these defaults are going to be realized. But again, this is all this misinformation. They're talking about these non-existent earnings at Bank of America. The real story is the mark-to-market losses that they pretend don't exist, but which are the very reason that Silicon Valley Bank failed. And, and how could you just pretend that these massive losses don't exist? Again, Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Right? You can have the best of intentions. Oh, my intention is not to touch that losing bond. I'm going to hold on to it for 28 years. And in 28 years, I'm going to get my money. And so I can pretend I haven't lost any money right now. You've lost a fortune right now. Number one, you've lost the opportunity cost. If you weren't dumb enough to have made that 30-year loan, you could have taken that money and, 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 and loaned it out for 5.5%. Or 7% or 7.5%, right? There's a huge opportunity cost for having been so dumb that you tied up all your capital for 20 to 30 years, you know, at 1, 2, 3%. I mean, why were the banks dumb enough to do that? Because they didn't give a damn, right? They were just focused on short-term earnings. They wanted to get the stock price going up, right? That's what they cared about. And they didn't give a damn about the long run because it's not their money anyway. And they figured the government will bail them out if they get in trouble. That's why my bank, I didn't do that nonsense. I didn't want to take my customer money. First of all, I said I was 100% reserve bank. But even if I wasn't 100% reserve, I wouldn't have been dumb enough to make those loans. I would have kept all the cash there anyway because I knew the loans were too low, the interest rates. That, that's what I did with my bond fund. Why did I keep my maturity so short in the Euro Pacific bond fund? Because I knew this was going to happen. And I knew eventually my bond fund would be on the top, and it is. But for years, I was in last place. How did I go from last place to first place? Because I was patient. Because I knew that interest rates would eventually rise. And so I wasn't dumb enough to loan out my money long term, knowing that was going to happen. Now, my competitors, they didn't care. Because again, they're just focused on short-term relative performance. I don't give a damn about that. I care about absolute long-term performance. And I'm confident that in the long run, I'm going to absolutely outperform everybody 
who was drunk at this party. I remained sober, right, and I did the right thing, knowing what was eventually going to happen. And it's not just with bonds. It's with stocks. It's with gold. It's with the dollar. Everything that I've been doing for the past 10 or 20 years with my own money and with my client money is predicated on my knowledge of how this is going to turn out in the end. Right? What I don't know is exactly how we get from here to there. I just know that we're going to get there. And when we get there, I know what your portfolio needs to look like to win. <laughs> because most of the people who think they're winning are going to end up losing. Again, if you're a poker player, a lot of people can go to a poker game and early on they can have a big stack of chips. <laughs> but if they lose, if they leave broke, doesn't matter. What matters is how big your stack is at the end of the night or the morning, however long you stay up playing cards. But I want to walk away the chip leader. I want, I want to get everybody's money. And I'm willing to lose a few hands in order to ultimately be the winner. And, and that's how I look at this whole process right now. I, I know we're holding the winning hand. We just have to wait, we just have to wait uh, for, for the showdown. Anyway, so for those of you who are interested, right, in, in, uh, in winning this game, you still have time to do the right thing, you know, I think, you know, because things could start to happen. Again, I'm looking at the charts for bonds, for gold, for oil. I would expect something uh, to happen soon in, in the market. I mean, to me, the charts are revealing uh, that these moves are going to happen. And, and, and we've got all the boxes checked as for the circumstances that should ignite this powder keg. And, and so, you know, but before that happens, I would be buying the gold and silver, you know, all that I can. Uh, if you got cash and, you know, you, you don't want to invest, that's where you keep your dry powder. You keep it in real money. So call up the the team over at Shift Gold, those guys are hard workers. You know, you could generally contact them anytime, day or night. They're there on the website. They'll pick up the phone. Uh, they'll work with you. They'll make sure you get your order processed right away and lock in your price even before uh, they get your money. Uh, so you can, you can you, know, have, you know, be assured that you've, that you've got a price uh, locked in for your gold and silver. And, um, yeah, you, you know, you got to get uh, your portfolio. If, if you're nearing retirement age, particularly, or if you're already retired, if you want to stay retired, you've got to get this right. Because most people are going to watch their money retire, right? And that's going to end their retirement. Because it doesn't matter how much money you have. What matters is how much purchasing power your money has. There are going to be a lot of broke millionaires in the United States, right? Don't let that happen to you. You don't want to go broke. You don't want to be taxed by inflation because, again, that's the only way this thing is going to end because all other options are basically politically off the table. There's only one politically viable option that will buy our leaders a little bit of extra time, and there's only one option that has any precedence uh, of, 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 of being played. You know, that's why a lot of people who are trying to play it cute, who think they're going to time the market, 
who think, yeah, Peter, I agree with you in the long run, could have hyperinflation, the dollar could crash, but you know, in the short run, I'm just gonna ride it out in T-bills, because I think I'm so smart that I'm gonna time this market, right? I, I don't need to buy my gold now. I agree with you, Peter, eventually, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 gold, but I don't wanna buy my gold now at $1,920, because I think I can wait and buy it a little cheaper, right? And then I'll ride it up to five or 10,000. Or, you know, I don't wanna buy these foreign dividend paying stocks now because they might go down a little bit and I wanna buy them cheaper. Yeah, good luck. Good luck doing that. Very few people will be able to pull off uh, that magic trick. You know, most people who are waiting to buy cheaper will wait indefinitely because they will miss it. They will miss the move in gold. They'll miss the move in the dollar. They'll miss the move in foreign stocks. They'll be sitting on a wad of depreciating dollars. Maybe they're earning 5%. And then what's going to happen is there's going to be a big move up, and they're going to be afraid to buy. Oh, no, I can't buy now. Uh, let me get a pullback. You know, I, you know, I, then I'll buy. Right? It's not worth the risk. If you agree with me right, that in the long run, the dollar's toast, gold's going to take off, then you invest for that right now, right? Don't think that you're gonna outsmart the market, that you're gonna time the market, and don't believe any, any uh, 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 asset manager who tells you he's gonna do it, right? Because he's not gonna do it, it's all BS. If anybody was that smart in timing the market, they wouldn't need your money, right? They'd be a billionaire, right? Because they'd be timing the market and making a fortune, right? Um, you don't wanna take that risk. Be, and and I've, I've, I've had this with debates with guys uh, for years because it's just not worth it. Even if you end up timing it and you end up buying your gold a little cheaper, buying your foreign stocks a little cheaper, how much cheaper are you going to buy them? 10%, 20%, 30%? I don't know, maybe, maybe if you're lucky. But what if you're waiting to get that little bit of a discount and you miss it completely and you end up paying double or triple to buy your gold or your foreign stocks, or worse yet, you don't buy them at all, and you completely miss out, right? You're left stuck at the station, and you know the train's left without you, and you never get on board. There are a lot of people who think the way I do about the long run, who are going to end up getting wiped out and losing just as much money as the people who are completely oblivious because they thought they could outsmart the market. They thought they were smart enough that they built some kind of model that they're going to know exactly uh, when to buy gold, uh, when to buy foreign stocks. Well, it's not that simple. You're not going to get an engraved invitation when it's the right time to do it. You have to have the guts and the conviction to do it on your own. Anyway, that's it for today. Don't forget, uh, like this podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and make a comment. And let me know what you think of this video. Bye for now.